Nerd Alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello, this is uh, Arjun Paliwal here, and I'm joined by Kent Lardner, co-host of the Property Nerds. Hi, Arjun. Hey, Kent. Well, Kent, you know, before we get into it, I just uh, wanted to make sure everyone gets a bit of a heads up on what we're doing here on the Property Nerds podcast. So we are property investment researchers, and our goal here is to really unpack the most crucial real estate data, deep dive into Australia's hot and cold markets, headlines, and trends. And so um, I also run a buyer's agency by the name of Investikit. So that's where I come from. And Kent, do you want to give us a bit of a spill on what you do at Suburb Trends? Yeah, Suburb Trends, I focus very much on content for the real estate sector. So, you know, the stuff that we talk about, packaged up and branded up, you can put it in your website, put it in a social post, and be the local expert. So that's what I do. Now, if you guys want to learn more about either of those, that's suburbtrends.com.au and thepropertynerds.com.au as well as investikit.com.au. So Property Nerds episode today, we're going to have some fun on a bunch of headlines and we really, really want to make sure as listeners, you get the opportunity to deep dive in headlines using the data that we'll give you, but also really see if this is what's happening or not. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be a new article every time you refresh your newsfeed and some of them will get you off your chair and like, okay, holy crap, what's happening here? And I think we just got to make sure that we look at it with some sense, make sure that it's not really shocking you where it shouldn't. And from there, you're able to make sensible decisions based on the information you get. So, Ken, the first headline that's in front of me now is buyer FOMO fuels house price surge. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, this is a, a Captain Obvious one, I think, but it's uh, actually saying that we've seen the largest lift in Australian house prices in 17.5 years as auction clearance rates reach new highs. I think the biggest concern that we've always got is when we call it one market. We don't ever like to call it one market. It's a coincidence at the moment that obviously the housing market across most, not all, but most regions across Australia are growing very, very strongly with the exception of the unit market. I think the apartment market, we've uh, spoken about that quite a few times. We will talk to that today. But a lot of the CBD apartment markets are not faring well, but The housing market is surging all over the country generally, but we do like to always call out that we don't want it to be viewed as a single market. Yeah, great point, Ken, because there's just such a variance of what's happening across those units and houses, different cities. And, you know, when we look back at even 2020, CoreLogic reported Adelaide is one of the best performing major markets. And when I classify major as over 1 million in population, so that's your Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth. And then you've got your hot and steady heat as well, which is interesting across your Hobart, Darwin and Canberra's, which have been roaring away, especially Canberra. And so when I looked at this one, I thought I'd also throw in some interesting on the ground analysis from the FOMO fuels house price search. We've got the luxury of having at least over, what, 22 people now across Australia on the ground visiting open homes all the time, seeing the heat, seeing the numbers. And some cities, I mean, just to give you some examples, in the regions of Adelaide, we've seen upwards of 50 people at the first open home. And you have to make a decision on whether I get this or don't in the first open home. So it's crazy. I mean, the same things are seeing across parts of Sydney's premium auctions, you know, Canberra, And surprisingly, the market heat in Hobart hasn't fallen off. It's been 
strong for now, what, four to five years. So I'm in a big tick on this article. I feel what's happening well and truly is, you know, the biofomo fueling house price surge. And I think it really comes down to inventory levels. Should we talk to that, Kent, on what we're seeing? Interesting here, the CoreLogic Hedonic Home Value Index was published on the 28th of February. So it's fairly recent. It's listed down by the capital cities. An interesting metric for mine is I looked at the stratified index by bed count. And the standout for me was how much change, increase in median price there has been for four bedroom properties, a significant surge. So that seems to be a very interesting call out in the data. So whilst this uh, hedonic index, you know, we can assume, I think they changed the methodology recently, but it looks like it's an overall aggregate of houses and potentially aggregate of units. But I think this one's uh, houses. But specifically, if we look at four-bedroom houses in Sydney, it's up around that 5% mark on an annual growth mark. So that's pretty significant. Melbourne, they actually listed the annual growth at minus 1.3, whereas if I look at the median change in four-bedroom houses across Greater Melbourne, it's actually a significant increase. It's you know well over 5%, about 5.7%. Mm. So I think that's an interesting thing to, to kind of start to look at the data from a couple of dimensions. And I think to your point, Arjun, about our inventory, I always like to look at a few metrics, not just the one. So if we can see that the overall median is going in a certain direction, if the three-bedroom property median is going up and the four-bedroom and the inventory levels are going in a certain direction, it does make sense when they all you know work in the same direction. So yes, I agree with that article. Yeah, totally. And just on the topic of inventory of what we're seeing, if you'd like to check out our new free monthly snapshot of inventory, each month we are dropping it on the Property Nerds social media pages, whether it's on you know Facebook, LinkedIn. We're seeing all this stuff here and we're putting it out there each month. And I've got in front of me the charts for January ending data. And just looking at now, six months ago and 12 months ago, there's a tightening across most of Australia. And the key standouts we can firstly comment on is the ACT. So ACT inventory levels sitting at 1.3, Kent. This is, tri- this is very tight. It is, it is. And that is probably a nice segue into the next uh, headline, which was from All Homes. Houses in the inner north, i.e. the ACT inner north, crack 1 million mark in median house prices. And so I think this actually was a domain report, but I think they're one of the same company. And it does look to me that the ACT still has the potential to pip Sydney for prices within 12 to 18 months. So it's surging. The inventory levels are certainly the lead indicator for us. We keep on talking about that. But Sydney is tight, 2.32, uh, the greater Sydney for houses as an inventory level. But ACT's 1.3. It's extraordinary. So it's obviously a frenzy. Have you got any feedback on the ground in the ACT? Yeah. So the same commentary, you know, the example I gave on Adelaide with so many people coming into open homes, it's the same thing here in ACT. If you're in, you know, your your Balkanins, your Tuggeranongs, your, you know, even closer into the inner parts of ACT, it is a factor of, do you want this property? You put an offer in on the first open home or do you not want this property and you miss out at the first open home. So that's how tight conditions are. And they're not cheap. So North Canberra is around that 1 million median. So that means half the property selling are above that in that particular SA3. And for South Canberra, it's 1.39 million. 
So, you know, I always like to just pinch myself and remind myself what a median is. It's the halfway point. So half the properties are selling above 1.39 million. So it's not a low cost area by all means. So, and it's surging still. Yeah. So I think you're going to hear a lot from us on what's happening out in the ACT and, you know, things across many of our markets on that inventory snapshot, please do check that out, is showing a lot of high pressure. And just to refresh the memory for those who are new to our measure of inventory, when Kent talks about inventory levels of 1.3 in the ACT market, we're assuming that, let's just say, there is a 10 per month sales average occurring. You're saying now that there are 13 listings and pretty much 10 of those are gone in the first 30 days. A nice way to explain it is that if no property listed for sale in the next couple of months, you wouldn't see any properties for sale in that region. All the inventory would be cleared in 1.3 months. That is amazing. So, you know, you've got your ACT at 1.3 and just to shout out a few others, so you're familiar with what we're seeing across the country, Greater Hobart at 2.1, Adelaide at 3.6, Sydney at 2.3. Melbourne at four. But the trend that we're seeing is almost all apart from Greater Melbourne, which of course we need to give some insights. Greater Melbourne is a very vast area, have gone backwards and strengthened in the capital city markets other than that. So watch this space. There is huge changes in listings versus demand pressure. So the next article, Kent, what have we got here? This is 10 Aussie suburbs where property prices are plummeting. It's one of our pet hates are these league tables and it's been published by REA Insights who do a great job but when it comes to talking about things such as largest price declines by suburb and creating a blacklist of suburbs you do upset a few people where the data can be challenged and in the case of a suburb where even though this says look we're only we're dealing with suburbs with more than 100 sales if you don't dig deep, if you don't look at the price distribution, if you don't look at what the compositional issues might be, you can sometimes make some mistakes. And I think what we've done here is we've looked through the, the list now. I'll go through it. The first area they've got listed is Cairns North, up in Queensland for units. Yes, I would agree. They're saying minus 12% change year on year or 12 months change in price, in median price. When I zoom out to the SA3 level, it agrees with that. So that's no problem there. The next suburb was Auburn. They've said a minus 12%. Yeah, okay, look, I've got a little bit less percentage change, but again, I'm not going to argue that. But on that list there, the next one, fourth one down, they've got Burpengary East. Yes, inventory levels there are high. Yes, prices have gone down. But there's two other suburbs on this list. I'm not even going to go past the fifth one. Two out of the top five I've got an issue with. And one of those is Redfern. So at the moment, Redfern apartments, Redfern units, they're claiming that it's dropped by 10% in price. But as we mentioned earlier, we like to look at the other data sets to see where the evidence is and see if there's a problem. And the inventory levels for Redfern are not high for apartments. Now, we're not apartment fans. Don't get me wrong. But I just like to talk to the truth. And the issue with Redfern is if, if anyone's anywhere near a computer when this podcast is on, go to REA, look up the sold tab, the sold link, put in Redfern, remove all the adjacent suburbs and sort it in time order. By the time you get down in the time order to about 12 months ago, which is when we're basing this and comparing the metrics, you will see a flurry of apartments that have sold well into the million mark 
lots of very large luxurious apartments sold about this time a year ago that haven't sold in the last few months. So there's been a significant change to the composition of what's sold. And that's the call out here. One of the key problems is if you just rely on the median and you don't dig deep and look for balanced and supporting evidence, you can end up misrepresenting. And I think that what we've got here is a misrepresentation that, you know, if I'm a real estate agent in Redfern today and I read this as a blacklist issue, I've got to deal with that. I've got to contend with that with buyers and sellers. And I think it's a problem. Massive problem. And so to all the listeners out there, when you're thinking of top 10s, top 20s, top 50s, highest growth, highest decline, lowest yield, highest yield, it's a very, very, you know, broken measurement when we look at it simply by a median change and looking at it when you don't consider what we call price segmentation. And so price segmentation is one of the key things. And I think if we touch on Turak, we can really talk about price segmentation well, that's, here. That's the fifth one on the list, which is the easy one to pick on. And when we look at Turak, it is effectively four distinct markets. So yes, we do have a, a distribution that sits around that 900,000 mark. There are some prices below it and above it. But then that price distribution flows down and continues through between 1.2 and 1.8 million. And then there's another market that exists between 2 million and 2.8 million, and then yet a further market above 3 mil. So it's almost, you could consider Turak as four markets in one. Mm. And this is where, you know, if you really want to go deep into that and you want to make sure that you're not relying on medians where you should not be relying on medians, jump on our free tool. It's on the propertynerds.com.au on our data hub. We've got price segments as a key tile. Now, just to quickly break down what that's going to show you, if you type in a suburb like Turak, for example, we're going to see a variation of segments where a whole bunch of percentage of sales occur in bracket one and call that bracket one, you know, sub one million. Then you have a whole bunch of percentage of sales that occur in the one to two million breakdown of those ranges and even some above two million. So how reliable is it when you're going to look at a median data and go, sure, this has grown or fallen. All it takes is a few dial changes on certain sales to occur on either end of this market, and you're stuffed with that measurement. You're going to think it's declining one year, rising the other. So as an investor, if you're thinking of median and what's happening, take a moment, jump onto our free price segments tool. And if you see that there's a big, broad split between percentages of sales, error, median's not going to be very reliable. If you see it quite tight, close in, approximately three maybe segments, call it a four to 600, a six to 800, 800 to a mil, just say those segments and you see a lot of them tied up between two of them, not a big gap spread across so many, medians could be pretty reliable. Is that fair to say? Well, especially in Stonington West, which is the SA3 that it belongs to. If you type that into our data hub search, it'll bring up all the suburbs adjacent to and that also partner in Stonington West. So I think, for example, Paran is in there. All the other suburbs that pertain to that SA3 are fairly normally distributed. So, you know, I wouldn't have this argument for those other suburbs. But when it comes to Turak, I would. So you let the data speak. And the data tells me medians are very, very unreliable for this suburb. And if you're a sales agent looking at this list and you're a vendor looking at this list and you're going, oh no, here we go, I've lost 9 to 10% you're probably sitting there laughing at this article. And I think this is where it's important to really dig deep onto the data, especially when talking medians, price segments, inventory levels, on the ground heat, 
consider those things. And, you know, this leads us to another segue around valuing these properties, thinking about the importance of, I guess, price indices, automated valuation models, how to really understand what's truly happening in these properties. Kent, do you want to touch on that? Yeah. So this really does highlight some of the problems we've got with indices or measuring price growth. So a lot of us have always been comfortable with the concept of a median, what that median is. In most cases, when we're trying to measure a median down to a suburb level, we're forced to use a rolling 12-month median to try and build up the sample size. That's a trade-off, obviously. The trade-off there is you're not getting that short-term movement because you really need to kind of see several months of change for that to truly flow through and fill up that rolling 12-month sample. So that's a a bit of an issue there. So the trade-off there is that you're playing with time and you have to go to a rolling 12-month to build up a statistically or what you believe is a statistically relevant sample. So what we often do here at the Nerds is we roll up to the SA3. And in most cases, when we look at the SA3, it's a fairly robust sample. We do that one of two ways. We do a rolling three-month sample, which looks pretty good, and we do a rolling 12-month sample. So in most cases, the SA3 overcomes those compositional bias and distribution problems that we've got down to that suburb level. But there are other indices out there, and obviously CoreLogic have got one called the Hedonic Index, and that just tries to or seeks to account for some of those crazy variations that impact things like medians. Now, I've often get asked, well, you know, how do you know when a hedonic index or a suburb is reliable using the hedonic index? I'll just talk in general terms because I know that they changed the methodology, so I'm going to have to make the assumption that I don't know all the ins and outs of their method. But let's just say what it's trying to do is use similar technology, if not the same technology, as you would use in an automated valuation model. So here's a really simple rule. If you go to one of these suburbs and pull up an automated valuation model, and they're available on the portals now. And if you're wondering, guys, what an automated valuation model is, am I correct in saying I go to a Combank app or I go to an ANZ app or I go to a a domain home price guide? When I see the property, I type in that value that shows up. Correct. That's it? That's an automated valuation model. So AVM for short. These price estimation tools have a confidence level. Sometimes they're a bit obscure and hard to understand, but maybe the best thing to do is to say, if you're using these in your suburb and you see errors, if you've used these and had some bad experiences, or on the other side of that, if you're in a suburb where they're fairly reliable, that's a good lead indicator to tell you how reliable your index will be. Mm. So if I've got a an area or a suburb where the AVMs are performing poorly, making some big mistakes, so too you can expect the same issues are going to flow into your indices. And this is where we come back to the SA3 and we really pull up a lot of these different suburbs to create, I guess, a cluster of suburbs. And for those who are going, what's this SA3? What robot or code language are you throwing at me, Kent? (laughs) (laughs) It's essentially in the most simplest of forms, a, you know, cluster of suburbs that come together to create a bigger data set something more reliable. And it's done by ABS where they have various measures of SA1, 2, 3, 4. And as you notice, the SA numbers get bigger. So too do your geographic locations, right? Is that yeah, a fair way to explain it? It is. And they've done a great job. So they've taken a statistical approach to this, whereas a local government area doesn't take a statistical approach to it. So we've ditched LGAs or local government areas and we favor the SA3. So it's a, it's a bit of a Goldilocks metric. And they've sought 
to cluster these areas on a number of factors. So they're trying to group together regions that uh, have similarities. So suburbs that belong to one SA3 would have more in common with other suburbs in that SA3 based on the ABS approach, if that makes sense. Correct. And this is where SA3 will have some pros and cons, and we want to shout them out. So the pros are, if we bring up the LGA example, Brisbane LGA, over a million people. It's huge. makes no sense for me to make a property investment decision based on what the data for a million plus people is showing. So what do we do? We look into SA3s because we don't want to look at that one suburb with a median price that fluctuates so much. And we end up getting over 10 SA3s, which divide this median price up into clusters of suburbs and their prices and their inventory levels. And so that's an example of where it works really well. Where it doesn't work so well is when you sometimes go out to our more you know, rural communities, more regional communities, and say we have the SA3 of Toowoomba or SA3 of Orange. Instead of just grabbing its core suburbs in the city center, we've now expanded to try and fetch more population size, more numbers and samples, and we extend to the whoop-whoops of these areas. And so that's where we want to make sure we call that out. But I guess that really helps us figure out how reliable that data is. Exactly. So, and again, local government areas, probably the other problem we've found there is they are fairly volatile with a lot of the councils that have been amalgamating. So that does make it a bit of a challenge, but if you can compare and contrast how we approach what we're measuring, which is a median, it takes a lot of the mystique out of the measurement system. So when there's no cloak and dagger, there's no you know, there's nothing to hide. The median is the median. And you can see the distributions. You can see how reliable it is likely to be by looking at that distribution through time. And so, Kent, when we're talking now about price growth measurements, we've spoken about how the skews of median, the indices, how to spot whether they're confident or not. When we're talking about price growth measurements, does it really then say to us, Yes, we've gotten more samples at a bigger level, but does it always just then come back to what is this property selling for now and what are they selling for a little bit later, comparables and so forth? Yeah, look, I think the biggie, we can talk about, we should talk about automated valuation models now because I think if you go back historically, what happened in Australia is there was, you know, I think I go back 15 years ago, this was a fairly new thing, especially in the public area. They were originally a product brought in from the United States, they were sold at a premium price. And then Zillow came along in the United States with their Zestimate product. And what happened is AVMs morphed from being this alternative valuation or QA type product used in the mortgage sector and morphed into something entirely different. It became a media play, became a lead gen tool. So effectively, the success of that Zestimate in taking a, a fairly new entrant in a crowded space and thrusting it to number one position very quickly, motivated a lot of the portals in Australia to do the same thing. And then off the back of that, suddenly it became a lead gen tool. And that's mm. what they are today. Primarily, they're a lead gen tool. There's a secondary use case, which is banks using them for quality control checks. But what we're finding now is that because it's in the public domain, a lot of people don't truly understand when they work and when they don't work or how they work. And I think a lot of people in the real estate sector, be it an investor, be it a buyer's agent, valuers, you name it, real estate agents, they come up 
against AVMs regularly. It's a big challenge. And in America, you know, there was a meltdown for quite a few years about estimates that didn't work and how it was impacting the industry. And everyone's kind of, the dust settled has settled now, so people don't talk about it as much. But there are several suburbs and several scenarios where AVMs will continue to cause you grief depending on the suburb you're in. And if you look at the topography, the geology, geography of Australia along the, the coastline, any of those suburbs along the beach do have problems. Any of those suburbs that are split by a highway and have you know, duality in the suburb, any of those suburbs that have a crazy distribution like Turak, those, you know, the unit market in Turak, they are all lead indicators. They're all things that tell us that AVMs are going to have some trouble in these locations. Mm, and this is where, you know, we love talking about the combination of you know, certain methodologies, certain data sets, and the human touch, right? And uh, we actually have put together a free guide for those who want to check it out. You can jump on the propertynerds.com.au and if you scroll to the bottom of that page, there is a free guide which talks about AVMs and, you know, partly produced by the godfather of AVMs, Kent, in front of me. And so we've got the AVMs, we've got the reviews of where it works, how to look into it, what to break it down with, and also just the common roll your sleeves up and what do you do to find out what a property is really worth? Yeah, well, the AVM works a few different ways. And one of the approaches is it seeks to match comparable sales and emulate the way a valuer would do it. So if you're producing a comparable market analysis, they call it a CMA in the industry, or you're a valuer and you're selecting your comparable sales, a matching algorithm seeks to do the same thing. And what it typically will do is it'll use variables such as time and distance and size and if it's on a main road, etc. Stuff we've covered in detail in that paper, that free download. And the problem is that it doesn't account for things like views. It mm. doesn't account for things like quality difference at the moment. Now, long term, AI might come into play will probably come into play and start to account for the fact that that kitchen is renovated and it can look for the photos of the listings and pull out of that whether it's renovated or not or the house style or not. That data will improve in due course. But right now, you will find that an AVM working in an area where there's a significant range in quality between properties will have a higher error because the comps that it pulls in are going to be high and low quality, whereas the human eye can account for that. So if you know the area, if you're comfortable with that local market and you're picking comparable sales like for like without bias, you can account for the quality differences. And then what you can do equally is you can match them up on lot size because most of that data is now in the public domain. So you can look for sales in and around the area and list three comparable sales, and you've got a pretty good idea. And I think you know, there's nothing better than actually knowing the subject property inside and out and then matching comparables yourself. And if you want to know, I guess, the dangers of not doing that homework, spend six months looking at a market and keep trying to purchase off an AVM solely, right? And if you're doing it solely and if it's not quite capturing the right level of confidence, you are going to keep missing out, whether it's going way over, whether it's going way under... And this is where, as buyers, you need to roll up the sleeves. You need to really check out whether it's with your professionals or on your own. And, you know, it takes me back to some of the days in the banking days of my career at CBA. We'd get multiple valuations every single week. We're checking them out. And there's this terminology that I want to shout out there, and you can learn more about it. 
But the terminology that valuers use a lot of the time is superior, similar, inferior, and then in between, slightly superior, slightly inferior. So the key to really nailing pricing, valuation, understanding it is having rules and scorecards. Yeah, well, if you've got, the, I call it framing, you can pull down three comparable sales against the subject property. And if they're all the same size and they're all the same quality, then it's a pretty easy job. But that's often not the case. So the framing for mine is if you don't have the same standard or the same quality, get one that's better and one that's worse. If you don't have them all the same size, get one that's bigger and one that's smaller. So if you've got a three-bedroom property and you can only find one other three-bedroom comparable property in the suburb that's sold in the last 12 months, get a four-bedroom and get a two-bedroom and throw it in there. The other thing you can do as well, and AVMs do this and do a good job of it, valuers are generally constrained to how far back they can go in time. They ideally try and use something within six months. But in a lot of the thinly traded markets, that's hard. And what AVMs do is they don't really use those rules. The only rule that they worry about is what gives me the lowest error. And typically, and there's many different designs, but a typical design would be that you would go back two or three years, sometimes longer if you're finding a comp on the same street. And then what they do is they index it. So we are talking about that earlier on. So then that, what they do is make a time-based adjustment for a comparable that might be two or three years old in that AVM methodology and bring it up. So that's how their matching algorithms work, but they can effectively go back way in time and adjust it for market movement and make it a current comp after indexation adjustment. So that's some of the ways that AVMs work. We do cover that in that paper. And you can get a bit of an idea of how you can emulate that yourself and become a bit of a valuation expert in your own right. Yeah, and it's more important now than ever because in areas of low stock, buyers are either going, this is too much, it doesn't make sense because they're reading a data set that suggests that they could buy it at that and they're just giving up. Or there's other buyers who are going, I need to get in, I'm seeing all this commentary about a boom and they're picking up stuff with right next to the train tracks, on a flood pocket, on a main road, low quality dwelling, high quality location. So they're compromising on certain things. And so if you really want to make sure you can reduce the risk that you're taking during these times, improve the way you in analyze and assess markets, analyze and assess properties and what they may go for, this is key. Understanding the various measurements, AVMs, pros and cons, as well as framing techniques, better, worse properties, different bedrooms, quality versus land, indexing it, all these factors. So if you want our help with this, jump on the website, thepropertynerds.com.au. We've got a free copy available to download. Scroll to the bottom of the page and we want to make sure you can reduce risk during these times. That's it from us here at The Property Nerds. Have an awesome rest of the day. Game over.